Chapter 23 of The Missing Bride. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Missing Bride by E. D. E. N. Southworth. Chapter 23. San Suchi's Last Fun. The inconceivable idiots said Thurston, as he strode on through the park of Luckenough, to fancy that anyone with eyes, heart, and brain could possibly fall in love with the will-o'-the-wisp Jacquelina, or worse, that giglet Angelica. When he sees Marian, Marian, whose least sunny tress is dearer to me than are all the living creatures in the world besides, Marian, for whose possession I am now about to risk everything, even her own esteem. Yet she will forgive me. I will earn her forgiveness by such devoted love. He hurried on until he reached an outer gate, through which old Oliver was driving a cart loaded with wood. As if to disencumber himself, he threw his game-bag and valuable fowling-piece to the old man, saying, There, uncle, there's a present for you and without waiting to hear his thanks, hurried on, leaping hedges and ditches, until he came to the spot where he left his horse tied since this morning. Throwing himself into his saddle, he put spurs to his horse, and galloped away toward the village, nor drew rein until he reached a little tavern on the water-side. He threw his bridle to an hostler in waiting, and hurrying in, demanded to be shown into a private room. The little parlor was placed at his disposal. Here, for form's sake, he called for the newspaper, cigars, and a bottle of wine, none of which he discussed, however, dismissed the attendant, and sat waiting. Presently the odor of tar, bilge water, tobacco, and rum warned him that his expected visitor was approaching, and an instant after the door was opened, and a short, stout, dark man in a weatherproof jacket duck trousers, cowhide shoes, and tarpaulin, had entered. "'Well, Miles, I've been waiting for you here more than an hour,' said Thurston, impatiently. "'Aye, aye, sir, all right. I've been cruising round, reconnoitering the enemy's coast,' replied the man, removing the quid of tobacco from his mouth, and reluctantly casting it into the fire. "'You're sure you know the spot?' "'Aye, aye, sir, the beach just below the old fields farmhouse and south of the Pine Bluff.' Aye, aye, sir, I know the port. That ain't the headwind, said Jack Miles, pushing up the side of his hat and scratching his head with a look of doubt and hesitation. What is, then, you blockhead, said Thurston, impatiently? Is your hire insufficient? No, 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 yes, I don't know. You see, Captain, if I were cocksure as that area little craft you want carried of were yarn— Hush, don't talk so loud, you're not at sea in a gale, you fool. Well, go on, speak quickly and speak lower. I was going to say, if so be I were sure you were the captain of her, why, then it should be plain sailing with no fog around and no breakers ahead. Well, I am, you fool. She's mine, my wife. Well, but captain, said the speaker, still hesitating, if so be that's the case, why don't she strike her colors to her rightful owner? Why don't you take command in open daylight with the drums a-beating and the flags a-flying? What must you board her like a pirate in this way for? I've been thinking on it, and I think it's dangerous steering along this coast. You see, it's all in a fog. I can't make out the land nowhere, and I'm afraid I shall be on the rocks afore I knows it. You see, Captain, I never were in such a thick mist since I first went to sea. No offense to you, Captain. 
Oh, none in the world, no skillful pilot will risk his vessel in a fog. But I have a certain golden telescope of magic powers. It enables you to see clearly through the thickest mist, the darkest night that ever fell. I will give it to you. In other words, I promised you $500 for this job. Come, accomplish it tonight, and you shall have a thousand. Is the mist lifting? I think it is, Captain. I begin to see land. Very well. Now is your memory as good as your sight? Do you recollect the plan? Aye, aye, sir. Just let me hear you go over it. I'm to bring the vessel round and lay to about a quarter of a mile o'er the coast. At dusk I'm to put off in a skiff and row to Pine Bluff and lay under its shadow till I hear your signal. Then I'm to put to shore and take in the, the, the cargo. Aye, aye, sir, the cargo. Leaving the two conspirators to improve and perfect their plot, we must return to the breakfast parlor at Luckenough. The family were assembled around the table. Dr. Grimshaw's dark, somber, and lowering looks, enough to have spread a gloom over any circle, effectually banished cheerfulness from the board. Marian had had no opportunity of reading her note. She had slipped it into her pocket. But as soon as breakfast was over, amid the bustle of rising from the table, Marian withdrew to a window and glanced over the lines. My own dearest one, forgive my haste this morning. I regret the necessity of leaving so abruptly. I earnestly implore you to see me once more upon the beach near the Pine Bluffs this evening at dusk. I have something of the utmost importance to say to you. She hastily crumpled the note and thrust it into her pocket just as Jacqueline's quizzical face looked over her shoulder. You're going to stay all day with me, Marian? Yes, love, that is till after dinner. Then I shall have to beg of Mrs. Waugh the use of the carriage to go home. Well, then I will ride with you, Marian, and return in the carriage. All the company, with the exception of Mrs. Waugh, Marian, and Jacqueline, had left the breakfast room. Mrs. Waugh was locking her china closet, and when she had done, she took her bunch of keys, and turning to Marian, said, Hebe, dear, I want you to go with me and see poor old cracked Nell. She's staying in one of our quarters. I think she has not long to live, and I want you to talk to her. Now, yes, dear, I'm going to carry her some breakfast, so come along and get your mantle, said the good woman, passing out through the door. Marian followed drawing out her pocket-handkerchief to tie over her head, and as she did so, the note, unperceived by her, fluttered out and fell upon the carpet. Jacquelina impulsively darted upon it, picked it up, opened, and read it. Had Jacquelina first paused to reflect, she would never have done so, but when did the elf ever stop to think? As she read, her eyes began to twinkle, and her feet to patter up and down, and her head to sway from side to side, as if she could scarcely keep from singing and dancing for glee. Well, now, who'd have thought it? Thurston making love to Marian, and keeping the courtship close, too, for fear of the old miser. Lord, but look here, this was not right of me. Am I a pocket edition of Miss Nancy Scamp? Forbid it, Titania, Queen of the Fairies, but I didn't steal it, I found it and I must, oh, must play grim a little with this. Forgive me, Marian, but for the life and soul of me, I can't help keeping this to plague grim. You see, I promised to pay him when he charged me with swallowing an assignation. And now if I don't pay him, if I don't make him perspire till he faints, my name is not Mrs. Professor Grimshaw. Let's see, 
What shall I do? Oh, why can't I pretend to lose it, just as Marion lost it, and drop it where he'll find it? I have it. Eureka! soliloquized the glancing elf as she placed her handkerchief in the bottom of her pocket and the note on top of it, and passed on to the drawing-room to bide her time. That soon came. She found the professor and the commodore standing in the middle of the room in an earnest conversation, which, however, seemed near its close, for as she took her seat, the commodore said, Very well, I'll attend to it, Nace, and clapped his hat upon his head, and went out, while the professor dropped himself into a chair and took up a book. Oh, stop! I want to speak to you a minute, uncle, cried Jacquelina, starting up and flying after him, as she flew, pulling out her handkerchief and letting the note drop upon the floor. A swift, sly, backward glance showed that Grimm had pounced upon it like a panther on its prey. "'What in the devil's name are you running after me for?' burst forth the old man as Jacko overtook him. "'Why, uncle, I want to know if you'll please to give orders to the stable to have the carriage wheels washed off nicely. They neglect it, and I and Marion want to use it this afternoon.' "'Go to the deuce! Is that my business?' Jacquelina laughed and, quivering through every fibre of her frame with mischief, went back into the drawing-room to see the state of Grimm. To Jacquelina's surprise, she found the note lying upon the same spot where she had dropped it. Dr. Grimshaw was standing with his back toward her, looking out of the window. She could not see the expression of his countenance. She stooped and picked up the note but had scarcely replaced it in her pocket before Dr. Grimshaw abruptly turned and walked up and stood before her and looked in her face. Jacquelina could scarcely suppress a scream. It was as if a ghost had come before her. So blanched was his color, so ghastly his features. An instant he gazed into her eyes and then passed out and went upstairs. Jacquelina turned slowly around, looking after him like one magnetized. Then, recovering herself with a deep breath, she said, Now I ask of all the powers that be generally, what's the meaning of that? He picked up the note, and he read it, that's certain. And he dropped it there again to make me believe he had never seen it, that's certain too. I wonder what he means to do. There'll be fun of some sort, anyway. Stop, here comes Marion from the quarters. I shouldn't wonder if she has missed her note, and hurried back in search of it. Come, I'll take a hint from Grimm, and drop it where I found it, and say nothing. And so, soliloquizing, the fairy glided back into the breakfast-room, let the note fall, and turned away just in time to allow Marian to enter, glance around, and pick up her lost treasure. Then joining Marian, she invited her upstairs to look at some new finery that just came from the city. The forenoon passed heavily at luck enough. When the dinner hour approached, and the family collected in the dining-room, Dr. Grimshaw was missing. And when a messenger was sent to call him to dinner, an answer was returned that the professor was unwell, and preferred to keep his room. Jacquelina was quivering between fun and fear, vague, unaccountable fear that hung over her like a cloud, darkening her bright, frolic spirit with a woeful presentiment. After dinner, Marian asked for the carriage, and Mrs. Waugh gave orders that it should be brought around for her use. Jacquelina prepared to accompany Marian home, and in an hour they were ready and set forth. You may tell Grimm, if he asks after me, that I am gone home with Marian to Old Fields, 
and that I'm not certain whether I shall return tonight or not, said Jacquelina, as she took leave of Mrs. Waugh. My dear Lapwing, if you love your old auntie, come immediately back in the carriage. And by the way, dear, I wish you would, either in going or coming, take the post office and get the letters and papers, said Mrs. Waugh. Let it be in going, then, Mrs. Waugh, for I have not been to the post office for two days, and there may be something there for us also, said Marian. Very well, bright Hebe, as you please, of course, replied good Henrietta. And so they parted. Did either dream how many suns would rise and set? How many seasons come and go? How many years roll by before the two should meet again? The carriage was driven rapidly on to the village and drawn up at the post office. Old Oliver jumped down and went in to make the necessary inquiries. They waited impatiently until he reappeared, bringing one large letter. There was nothing for luck enough. The great double letter was for Marian. She took it, and as the carriage was started again and drawn toward old fields, she examined the postmark and superscription. It was a foreign letter, mailed from London and superscribed in the handwriting of her oldest living friend, the pastor who had attended her brother in his prison and at the scene of his death. Marian, with tearful eyes and eager hands, broke the seal and read, while Jacquelina watched her. For more than half an hour, Jacko watched her, and then impatience overcame discretion in the bosom of the fairy, and she suddenly exclaimed, Well, Marian, I do wonder what can ail you. You grow pale, and then you grow red. Your bosom heaves, the tears come in your eyes, you clasp your hands tightly together as in prayer, and then you smile and raise your eyes as in thanksgiving. Now I do wonder what it all means. It means, dear Jacquelina, that I am the most grateful creature upon the face of the earth. Just now and tomorrow I will tell you why I am so, said Marian with a rosy smile. And well, she might be most grateful and most happy, for that letter had brought her the assurance of fortune beyond her greatest desires. On reading the news, her very first thought had been of Thurston. Now the great objection of the miser to their marriage would be removed, the great obstacle to their immediate union overcome. Thurston would be delivered from temptation, she would be saved anxiety and suspense. Yes, I will meet him this evening. I cannot keep this blessed news from him a day longer than necessary, for this fortune that has come to me will all be his own. Oh, how rejoiced I am to be the means of enriching him. How much good we can both do. These were the tumultuous, generous thoughts that sent the flush to Marian's cheeks, the smiles to her lips, and the tears to her eyes that caused those white fingers to clasp and those clear eyes to rise to heaven in thankfulness as she folded up her treasured letter and placed it in her bosom. An hour's ride brought them to Oldfield Cottage. The sun had not yet set, but the sky was dark with clouds that threatened rain or snow, and therefore Jacquelina only took time to jump out and speak to Edith, shake hands with old Jenny, kiss Miriam, and bid adieu to Marian, and then saying that she believed she would hurry back on her auntie's account, and that she was afraid she would not get to lucky enough before ten o'clock anyhow, she jumped into the carriage and drove off. 
and Marion, guarding her happy secret, entered the cottage to make preparations for keeping her appointment with Thurston. Meanwhile, at Luckenough, Dr. Grimshaw kept his room until late in the afternoon. Then, descending the stairs and meeting the maid, Maria, who almost shrieked aloud at the ghastly face that confronted her, he asked, Where is Mrs. Grimshaw? Lord, sir, cried the girl, half paralyzed by the sound of his sepulchral voice. She's done gone home long, O oh Miss Marion. When will she be back, do you know? Lord, sir, cried Maria, shuddering. I heard her tell old Miss how she didn't think she'd be back tonight. Ah, said the unhappy man in a hollow tone that seemed to come from a tomb as he passed down. And Maria, glad to escape him, fled upstairs and never paused until she had found refuge in Mrs. Lesseau's room. One hour after that, Professor Grimshaw, closely enveloped in an ample cloak, left Luckenough and took the road to the beach. End of chapter 23